Greetings fellow captains and welcome back to Rank Amateur. In this episode we will be going over the USS Colorado which is a tier 7 non-premium battleship so it's a tech tree and boy is it going to be an interesting discussion about this especially in the World of Warships section of this episode but there is a significant amount of history behind this ship so without further ado let's get on with the episode. And as per usual, we will go over the news right away in World of Warships, and then we will get to the naval history behind USS Colorado. And first up on the news is that you can get 500 doubloons per recruit, and this is the last chance to do so. The thing ends in about a day or so, so about uh, November 23rd, and this is, uh, you can get 500 balloons for every recruit that you bring to World of Warships, which is a pretty hefty prize if I had any friends that were interested in playing World of Warships, would definitely do that. Uh, next up is World of Warships has now released their music from in-game, so like when you're in battle and when you're in port, uh, and they have put it into a study contemplation that's about an hour and 22 minutes long. And this is just posted on YouTube. You can just uh, look up World of Warships study music or uh, World of Warships official soundtrack. And you will get that on YouTube. And one video is about 12 minutes long. And then one video is about, 100, about uh, uh, one hour and 22 minutes. And that will be very useful for studying. I do plan on using that myself to study. Enhances your focus and whatnot. Next event is the annual turkey shoot, and this is when players take either side. They can take a volunteer to become a turkey, or they can be a player who shoots at the turkeys, and there are rewards for playing either side. So if you sink a turkey, you will get five fall cornucopia camos, you will get two papa papa signals, which I run every time I go into a match, uh, two Zulu hotel signals, two Zulu signals, two equal speed Charlie London signals, or no, equal speed London Charlie signal, excuse me, to India Bravo Terra 3, and the community turkey shoot flag, which I really want to have. Um, and there are certain times that you can expect to see turkeys, so uh, those times are listed on Wargaming's website, or not Wargaming's website, World of Warships website. There are a lot of times, so I'm not going to read them out loud now. But you can also become a turkey, and you have some uh, rules that you have to follow. It's called the Turkey Terms of Engagement. They're outlined on Wargaming's or World of Warships website. And to become a turkey, you have to go to the Discord of World of Warships and volunteer there. And there's some fairly strict rules. If you break the rules, you will be removed from the event, or you will receive a warning, and then you'll be removed from the event and future events. But the rewards for playing 10 battles at the designated times for turkeys will be uh, three days of premium count and the turkey shoot flag. And for 25 battles, you'll get 10 fall cornucopia camos and three type 59 camos. 35 battles will be 10 fall cornucopia camos, uh, two free U.S. battleship collection, free loot boxes and previous tier rewards. And 45 battles will be 10 fall cornucopia camos, one free Black Friday box or container, and then previous tier rewards. So that is uh, some pretty hefty rewards for the turkeys, but... You do have to make an announcement that you are a turkey, and you can expect to be, see um, or expect to be targeted and sunk a lot more often because people do want those awards, and you cannot shoot at any other turkeys, or unless it's critical in winning the match. So, I don't think I'm going to become a turkey, but I do certainly want to be on the lookout for those turkeys. You should too, and I do want those awards. So I guess if you will become a turkey, I will see you out in the seas, and you should prepare to be sunk. Next up is a public test of updates 0.9.11 and 0.9.12. That's round two of public tests, so if you're interested in being on the public test server, go check that out. A another bit of news is a new uh, thing for the premium shop, and that's Bismarck in Gothic Camouflage. 
And that's a pack that you can buy, uh, which will contain a lot of credits, and it will also contain some gothic camouflage, or actually a permanent gothic camouflage, for the German battleship Bismarck. It does look quite interesting, and I think some people will like it a lot. And now the final bit of news for World of Warships is that there will be another Armchair Admirals stream going on, and that is going to be about Pearl Harbor and how the U.S. was dragged into war by the Imperial Japanese Navy. And this is going to include the special guests from World War II and Time Ghosts, and that is Indy Nadell and Spartacus Olson, and they'll be joining the regular panelists on the Armchair Admiral stream, which is Drachnafell, Mighty Jingles, uh, Tusi, and Mr. Conway. And this stream will be going on for three hours, and I'm assuming it'll be a very nice discussion of the events that unfolded on December 7th, 1941, and that is going to be going on November 28th at 11 a.m. Central Daylight Time U.S. So whatever that time is for you. But I do plan on tuning into this as I am an avid follower of the Mighty Jingles and be interested to see what they have to say about Pearl Harbor. And now let's get into some listener mail. And first order of business is, I regret to say that I did mispronounce the name of the person who wrote in from Argentina last week, and I apologize for that. Their actual name is Patricio Cocolo. Uh, sort of. I probably butchered it again, but, which I do apologize for. Spanish is uh, not a language that I speak. But moving on to our next email, we have another email from Frederick from Sweden, and he writes in, he says, I think Wiles could introduce some of these ships, what do you think? And he has a link for me to some Swedish cruisers, actually. And Swedish cruisers would be very interesting in World of Warships, I think. The only problem is that there was, like, only three of them that are suitable for play over Tier 4, and this is because Sweden had a perpetual fear that they were going to get nuked by the Russians, at least in the Cold War, so they didn't really want to build any more ships after World War II, at least ships that were larger than a destroyer, and this is why they have a good destroyer line that's complete with ships that I think... I don't think there is any fake ships in the destroyer line. At least there's probably only one or two. But if they were to make a Swedish cruiser line, they would have to do a lot of ships that didn't actually exist. And that kind of, I, I guess I don't like that idea, but it would be interesting to have ships that are armed with incredibly fast reloading and low damage torpedoes and maybe some rapid fire six inch guns because that is what the Swedish cruisers that did exist have. They had a lot and odd number of six inch guns, but they weren't heavily armed or armored in any other fashion. In fact, some of their light cruisers were actually converted into like seaplane tenders and sort of aircraft carriers. They had uh, like a few catapults on the back and a mini flight deck, which would be interesting to see integrated in World of Warships. But I guess I'm not wargaming. I don't know if they're going to introduce that or not. I know that probably the next order of business for wargaming is going to be Italian battleships, which I will be interested to see because Italy did have a large amount of battleships, but uh, maybe that's kind of in wargaming's back pocket is the fact that they're going to introduce Swedish cruisers at some time, which I would be interested to play because Swedish destroyers are really annoying, and I can't imagine cruisers being that annoying. It would be fun to play, maybe not so fun to play against. But thank you, Frederick from Sweden, for writing in. And that concludes our news and listener mail section of this episode. And after the break, we will be back on to the naval history behind USS Colorado. And we're back at Rank Amateur doing the naval history behind USS Colorado designation BB-45. And USS Colorado was ordered on August 29th, 1916, laid down on May 29, 1919, launched March 22, 1921, commissioned August 30, 1923, and she was built in New York City by the New York Shipbuilding Corporation. She had a displacement of 32,600 long tons unloaded. She had a length of 624 feet 3 inches, or 190.27 meters, a beam of 97.5 feet, or 29.7 meters, a draft of 30.5 feet, or 9.3 meters, 
and a speed of a sluggish 21 knots, which is 24 miles an hour or 39 kilometers an hour. She had an armament of eight 16-inch guns. Yes, 16-inch guns. This was the first ship in the U.S. Navy to carry such a gun. They were 45 caliber Mark I guns. And you could see that they were the first type of ship in the U.S. Navy to carry such a large gun because they are the Mark I iteration. And for you metric users, that is 406 millimeters. Uh, the secondary armament consisted of 14 5-inch 127mm 51 caliber guns as pretty much typical of battleships of the time in the U.S. Navy. She did carry four 3-inch 76mm or 23 caliber guns, and that's a little bit atypical of a ship of the U.S. Navy. Usually they didn't carry guns like that. Usually you'd see like six guns with three on either side or eight guns. There's usually not just two on either side. And then she did carry two 21-inch submerged torpedo tubes, and that's 533mm for you metric people. Um, the armor on this ship was still in the all-or-nothing scheme, which basically means that the ship is armored as if you were to say, have all the armor or none of the armor. So every single bit of the ship was armored to uh, extreme proportions, actually. The belt was 8 to 13.5 inches thick, or 203 to two, or 343 millimeters thick. The turret barbettes, which is the stand that the turret sits on, uh, contains ammunition hoists, which means that they're very well armored. was 13 inch, so 330 millimeters. Turret faces had 18 inches of armor, so 18 inches of solid steel, if you can picture that. That is 457 millimeters of armor. Turret sides had 9 to 10 inches, or 229 to 254 millimeters of armor. Turret tops only had 5 inches of armor. So that is 127 millimeters of armor, and you can kind of see the weaknesses of the ship because that means that longer range of plunging fire is going to be easier to punch through the top of the turret. So the turret rear did have 9 inches of armor, or 229 millimeters. So this is a curious choice of armor uh, configurations for the ship. I, if I was a naval engineer, would put the 9 inches of armor on top of the turret and the 5 inches at the rear because you're really not going to be getting shot at by the, from the rear a lot if your positioning is okay. So the conning tower did have 11.5 inches of armor, as pretty typical of battleships, conning towers usually pretty well armored. That's 292 millimeters. The decks had 3.5 inches or 89 millimeters of armor, and that is uh, pretty hefty. It means it's gonna be fairly resistant to uh, smaller caliber arms fire from destroyers that come in at plunging arcs. Uh, she had a catapult on the fantail of the ship, and in World War II, that would have carried a Vought OS-2U Kingfisher, which is a observation plane that's used to make sure that nothing surprises the battleship, as it is not very maneuverable, sluggish, and a big target for any aircraft or uh, destroyers or possibly the occasional submarine that were to try to sneak up on the ship. Hope the idea is that observation plane would be able to pick that up and also provide some targeting for the guns to extend their effective range, as it does in World of Warships. So when these ships were designed, they were basically direct copies of the preceding Tennessee class, which there is a representative of in World of Warships, and that's USS California. USS California was a Tennessee-class battleship, and the Tennessee-class battleships were basically direct copies of the USS New Mexico, so you can kind of see the similarities there. And this, the only difference between the two, or the three actually, was the fact that the Colorado had eight 16-inch guns rather than 12 14-inch guns. And this was the first ship to mount the 16-inch guns, and it was also the last standard-type battleship completed for the U.S. Navy, which is appropriate that it's placed at Tier 7 and the last standard-type battleship that players will play in World of Warships, or at least until recently inter the introduction of the kind of pseudo-Tillman battleships of Kansas, and Minnesota, and Vermont, which... Uh, if you choose to go down that path, it's your own choice. But now there is the option of fast battleships after Tier 7. And it only gets to be a really fast battleship at the Iowa and Montana because it's more of like a meteorically paced 
battleship at the Tier 8 North Carolina. As well as being the first ship to have 16-inch guns in the U.S. Navy, they were also one of the many ships that had uh, turboelectric drives, which was supposed to be the new way to power a ship, and just basically meant that the system was more complicated and harder to repair and more prone to breakdown. So most of the ships that had this type of turboelectric drive were converted back to conventional steam turbines because it was just easier to maintain and the Navy knew how to use it, and there were really no benefit to the more expensive General Electric turboelectric drive. Um, so this produced 28,900 shaft horsepower and attained the top speed of 21 knots as previously stated, but on the speed trials, it was actually measured that she did produce 31,268 shaft horsepower, significantly more than 28,900, but this meant that she only went 21.09 knots instead of 21 knots. So really not much of a difference there and just consuming a lot more fuel. And she had a cruising range of around 8,000 nautical miles at 10 knots. But during wartime, she could take on extra fuel tanks and storage units and reach a cruising range of 21,100 nautical miles at the same 10 knot speed and she did have 64 officers and 1,241 enlisted crew members in wartime and peacetime I think. I'm not totally sure if it changes during wartime, it probably does as they take on more marines during wartime. But you guys may be thinking, why were these ships so slow versus the reasonably armored North Carolina was a lot faster than these ships? Well, there's two reasons for that. Um, short ships generally turn way better than longer ships, but have a harder time attaining a high top speed. Versus longer ships, as seen in the Soviet Union's ships in World of Warships, uh, they are very, very long, which means that they have an excellent top speed for their classes, or usually, not always, but they have a terrible turning circle radius because it's harder to turn a longer ship because there's more surface area that has to push against the water in order to turn, so it takes longer. And the second reason is just sheer amount of horsepower. This thing had 28,000 horsepower, which may seem like a lot, but the battleship North Carolina had like 121,000 shaft horsepower. So you can see how much more horsepower to go faster that the North Carolina had over the Colorado. Now what exact mechanical differences they did in order to decrease that horsepower, I don't exactly know. But I know it made a huge difference in the speed and maneuverability of the ship. The acceleration of a battleship, especially the Colorado class, is abysmal. It takes a long time to reach the top speed. So you can see that there's a huge advancement in shipbuilding in just the 10 years or so that's between the building of USS Colorado and the USS North Carolina. But now let's get into the history of USS Colorado. So the interwar period, since the ship was launched after World War II, was not super, uh, wasn't, wasn't super eventful, let's say. So, during her maiden voyage, she did steam to Europe to do, uh, I guess, a kind of a peacekeeping mission over there. Just kind of show the U.S.'s presence over there. And the rest of the 1920s and 1930s was not very eventful, save one event. And this takes place in 1937, specifically the summer of 1937, when she is a training ship for the United States Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps, or NROTC. And that's a college-based program that promotes officers in, or gets recruits to have the automatic status of officer in the United States Navy Reserves. And she was training those students, and they were practicing firing the 5-inch uh, guns. And actually, they were in hammocks just above those guns, so maybe they uh, pulled some strings to fire those guns. But uh, Liberty in Honolulu, Honolulu uh, and this is where the destination for these students was going to be, was supposed to begin on July 1st, but this was interrupted the following day so that USS Colorado could join the task force that was tasked with the search for... Amelia Earhart, maybe the more observant of you have been thinking about this, but she did rendezvous with the United States Coast Guard cutter Itasca, and Itasca had been tasked with keeping radio contact and kind of just following Amelia Earhart as she did the around the world uh, flight, but they did not establish 
radio contact with Amelia Earhart at all due to some miscommunication issues, so they lost her and they don't know what happened to her. And essentially what they did is they launched seaplanes to search the Phoenix Islands for her. As we all know, this was to no avail, so they performed a line crossing, which is a crossing of the equator ceremony for the students from the NROTC, and then they returned to their schools on the West Coast. And now we arrive at the World War II history of this ship. So from January 27, 1941 onwards, Colorado was based at Pearl Harbor. And during this time, she was undergoing training exercises and taking parts in like war games. So kind of like live training with other ships of the U.S. Navy fleet. And you may be thinking, wait a second. USS Colorado was not present for the attack on Pearl Harbor. What are you trying to push on us? Uh, well, that's because she left for the West Coast on June 25th, and this was to uh, undergo a overhaul at Puget Sound Navy Yard, and thus she was not present for the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And just during this refit, which was fairly basic and completed on March 31st, 1942, uh, two of her 12 original 5-inch 51 caliber guns were removed and replaced by uh, to 5-inch 38 caliber guns. And then after this refit, she did carry out extensive training maneuvers on the West Coast, and she also patrolled the Golden Gate Bridge area in the San Francisco Bay for any potential Japanese attacks on U.S. soil. Yes, there was fear during this time that the Japanese may come so far as to strike the U.S. homeland. And she was patrolling with her sister ship, the USS Maryland, another Colorado-class battleship. And this attack never uh, materialized, so the time from May 31st, 1942 to around, like, mid-July or so did not actually come to any use. And then she steamed off to uh, participate in the action of World War II, and she operated in the vicinity of the Fiji Islands and New Herbrides from November 8th, 1942 to September 17th, 1943. And this was just to prevent the Japanese from even so much as thinking from coming that far into the Pacific and taking those strategic islands. And she sailed from Pearl Harbor on October 21st, 1943 to provide uh, pre-invasion bombardment and fire support for the invasion of Tarawa. And that's just a capital of a small island nation in the Pacific, but it was strategic and needed to have the Japanese erased from the island nonetheless. After another overhaul on the west coast, the Colorado returned to uh, the Hawaiian Islands on January 21st, 1944. And on January 22nd, 1944, she started steaming for the Marshall Islands. And this was just some more pre-invasion bombardment support. And this extended until February 23rd, where she headed to Puget Sound Navy Yard for a- another overhaul. And this is what you get with ships that are kind of old, actually pretty old by this time. These being World War One ships and technology-advancing significantly since they were built so they need constant modernization to keep them up with the japanese which were very advanced in their naval technologies and techniques in which they used their ships along with their shipbuilding period so the u.s navy did need to match them or exceed them in order to win the war and this is why we see so many world war one era ships being modernized pretty much constantly to ensure that they are up to standard So on May 5th, 1944, she departed San Francisco for the Marianas Islands and past Pearl Harbor and Coalition to participate in the pre-invasion shelling of Saipan, Guam, and Tinian, and this occurred after June 14th, 1944. But during the shelling of Tinian on July 24th, 1944, she was hit by 22 shells from 150mm Japanese shore batteries. Incredibly accurate Japanese shore batteries, if not to say myself. And this killed 43 men and wounded another 198. So she is actually riddled with bullet holes, and the ship does look like something resembling Swiss cheese. There are photographs of this event in the USS Colorado's history, and it's interesting to look them up and see them, because you can literally see all the holes in the side of the hull in which direction she was facing. 
I'm surprised that the 150mm Japanese shore battery was even able to penetrate the belt armor on the USS Colorado, which I would blame on poor positioning on the captain of the USS Colorado. Had he been angling the armor, most of those hits received probably would have ricocheted off the belt armor. But since it was evident then he was completely broadside uh, and took those hits on the belt, which penetrated and wounded 198 and killed 43 men. Which is quite interesting, because you don't really hear about many hits from shore batteries. I know the USS Wisconsin was only hit once by a shore battery, and that's an Iowa-class battleship. And it participated in many bombardments of uh, shore batteries. And yet the second time that USS Colorado sees action, it gets hit 22 times by a mere 150mm Japanese shore battery. And it couldn't hit the Japanese shore battery in return? I don't know. But it continued shelling the island regardless and providing fire support for the invasion troops. And then, after undergoing extensive repairs to repair said damage on the West Coast, she arrived in Leyte Gulf to, to begin the invasion of Leyte. And then, a week after her arrival, she was struck by two kamikaze bombers. And this killed 19 crew members, injured 72, and damaged the ship. And despite the damage, she bombarded Mindoro on schedule from December 12th to December 17th, 1944. And then she proceeded to the Maunus Islands for emergency repairs because getting hit by two kamikazes is no light blow to a ship. I'm surprised that more men weren't killed. They probably hit the decks or something like that, something not like the superstructure where a lot of people are located. And then she returned to Luzon on New Year's Day, 1945, to participate in the pre-invasion shelling of uh, Lingyan Gulf. And then she was hit by accidental gunfire eight days later. And this essentially means she was hit by friendly fire. So, um, oops. And this gunfire hit her superstructure and caused 69 casualties, 18 killed, 51 wounded. You know, I wonder how many people in World War II were killed by friendly naval gunfire. Because I know the USS Atlanta was basically sunk by the USS San Francisco during a night fight. Because the US was terrible at night fights and the Japanese was very good at it. So the USS San Francisco mistook the USS Atlanta for some Japanese ship and began to beat the living crap out of it. And... The USS Atlanta had to be scuttled, and it's theorized that most of the damage USS Atlanta took was from the USS San Francisco's 8-inch shells. So, I wonder how many people on the Atlanta and on the USS Colorado and other ships were killed by their own gunfire. Interesting thought. Anyways, she returned to Ulithi for repairs. And then she joined Task Force 54 for the pre-invasion shelling of Okinawa at Kiarmarito. Okay, I don't know how to pronounce any of these specific island names. But she stayed at Okinawa until May 22nd, 1945, and provided anti-aircraft cover and fire for the invasion troops. So yes, it took like, what, three years or four years for the anti-aircraft batteries of Colorado to finally get up to the standard in which they could defend something other than just the ship itself. And on August 6th, she returned to occupy Okinawa to sail to Japan for uh, the Japanese occupation. And then on August 27th, she covered the airborne occupation of Atsuki Airfield. And then Colorado was awarded seven battle stars for her World War II service. So, I mean, this was a ship that was pretty much banged and battered throughout the war by the Japanese and occasionally by the Americans and other friendly fire, which is sad, but it did earn her seven battle stars for her service in the war, which I think is much deserved. So, after the war was pretty uneventful, she departed Tokyo Bay on September 20th, 1945 for San Francisco, arrived in San Francisco on October 15th, 1945, and sailed for Seattle for Navy Day, which is October 27th. And then she participated in Operation Magic Carpet, which was the return of U.S. 
soldiers from Japan and abroad by U.S. Navy ships, and she made three runs to Pearl Harbor to transport 6,357 soldiers home before returning to Bremerton Navy Yard for her sad deactivation. And she was placed on a reserve commission, so she even lost her status in Naval Reserve on January 7th, 1947, and she was sold for scrap on July 23rd, 1959. So what remains of the ship? Well, the ship's bell is actually on display in the University Memorial Center at the University of Colorado. A 5-inch, 130-millimeter uh, 51 caliber deck gun from the USS Colorado was donated to the Puget Sound Naval or Maritime Historical Society in 1959 and is displayed at the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle. It is one of eight guns on the Colorado. And six of the Colorado's 5 inch 51 caliber guns were put aboard the protected cruiser USS Olympia, which became a museum ship in Philadelphia in 1957. And this was just to imitate the or the Olympia's original guns as they were very similar. And boards from her wood deck were repurposed to form a wall in the main lounge of the Haggett Hall at University of Washington. And a plaque commemorates... And there's actually a plaque with a picture of the ship on the wall. And there's another wall with wooden boards from the deck of USS Colorado at the Washington Athletic Club. And there's a Legends Room in there, and that is where the wall is of USS Colorado. More parts of the Colorado and more decking of the Colorado were donated by Boeing to the USO Northwest SeaTac Center to serve as the center's new entry flooring. And her helm is in the collection of the Colorado Springs Museum, donated by Rear Admiral G.R. Luker and other naval officers who served on the USS Colorado. So, I guess gone, but not forgotten. Anyways, that concludes our naval history section on USS Colorado. Please stay tuned for the World Warship section of this episode on the USS Colorado. And we're back for the final section of this episode on USS Colorado at Rank Amateur. And that is the World Warship section on USS Colorado. So without further ado, let's get into the World of Warship specifications of USS Colorado. So she has a base, or everything here is going to be stock configuration. So she has 49,000 hit points stock, which is pretty terrible for a... Uh, tier 7 battleship, it means she's going to take a lot of damage and not be able to absorb it. Main battery consists of a 406mm 45 caliber. It has it as Mark 5 here for whatever reason, but Mark 1 is actually what they were. Uh, main battery, and those are uh, four turrets, each with two guns each, and the reload time is finally back down to 30 seconds. The turret rotation speed is not all that bad, actually. It's only 45 seconds, which is pretty swift for a battleship armed with 16-inch guns at Tier 7. Uh, the firing range is based 17.12 kilometers, and uh, it's okay. I mean, it's not bad, because the accuracy of these guns means you're not going to hit anything out of range anyway, so I guess whatever. Uh, maximum dispersion is 231 meters, which doesn't seem all that bad, except the stigma value is terrible. And the stigma value is like how tight are the groupings of the shells going to be. The dispersions, how far off target are the sh could the shells be? But the stigma value is how close are those shells going to be to one another, which means that this, while the dispersion's not bad, you can't expect the shells to be anywhere near each other once they reach their target, which is a little frustrating. So the HE shell is a 406mm HEHC Mark 13 shell, does 5,700 maximum damage with a 36% chance of fire on target and an 803 meter a second velocity. The HE shell weight is 861.8 kilograms. The AP shell is a 406mm AP Mark 5 shell. Uh, maximum AP shell damage is a kind of um, mediocre 12,400 damage. And the AP shell velocity is a very low 768 meters a second. I guess not very low, but kind of low, 768 meters a second. It's not as low as the North Carolina, but it's not really where we want it to be. 
the AP shell weight is a sort of light 1,016 kilograms, and that's a light shell for 16 inches. And this is because the Colorado Wallet does have basically the same guns as the North Carolina. It does not fire the super heavy armor-piercing ammunition that the North Carolina does. So while you don't get the 50 caliber armor or 50 caliber guns until the tier 9 USS Iowa, you still get the super heavy armor piercing ammunition with USS North Carolina. However, that's not the case on USS Colorado, so you do have to settle for a relatively light armor piercing shell. And now onto the secondary armament, which consists of 127mm 51 caliber Mark 7 guns. There is 10 uh, turrets, each with one gun in it, so 10 guns. Firing range is 5 kilometers, which is okay. Rate of fire is 8 shots a minute for a reload time of about 7 seconds. The HE shell is 127mm HE HD Mark 39 shell. Maximum damage is 1800, which is pretty typical. Initial HE or shell velocity is a 960 meters a second which is pretty dang good. Those things are basically lasers, but they're only firing out to five kilometers, so they better be lasers. The chance of fire on target caused by the HD shell is about 6%, which is eh, decent, so you can't really rely on these uh, secondary armaments to do anything for, for you or anything much because there's only five of them on each side. They have a seven-second reload. They don't do much damage, and their fire on target chance is not super great. But there is more secondary guns, and that's those 25 caliber 127mm guns, of which there are 8, 4 on each side. Firing range is the same, 5 kilometers. The reload time is 4.5 seconds. The HE shell is 127mm HE, HE Mark 36 shell. Maximum HE shell damage is 1800. And the initial HE shell velocity is an abysmal, and I mean abysmal, 657mm meters a second. Holy crap, that's terrible. I, I don't think I've seen a gun that has that kind of velocity in the game before. I mean, maybe the USS Atlanta has less of velocity, but that's terrible. Chance of fire on target is a 9%. So it has a faster reload than the other guns, and it has a higher fire chance. Makes sense? Not really. The AA defense is fairly numerous, lots of Orlikins, 28mm 75 caliber guns, and 127mm secondary guns, as those other secondary guns are dual purpose, the 25mm ones at least. And that means that the AA on this ship is fairly respectable. You do not want to go near this ship as an aircraft carrier, or at least attack it directly, but it's not going to stop all the attacks that come to it. Remember, this is no North Carolina. So the maneuverability is... Terrible. Not even going to sugarcoat it. It's bad. It's very bad. The maximum speed base is 18.59 knots. Oh my gosh. I think it can run faster than that. I really think it can run faster than that for longer than the USS Colorado has coal or fuel oil in it. Uh, turning circle radius is a decent 640 meters. The rudder shift time is horrid. I mean horrid. 18.3 seconds. Very bad. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, maybe typical for a battleship of its type, but it's uh, not typical as what you would see on the new USS New Mexico. USS New Mexico has a way better uh, turn, uh, rudder shift time. So it's a huge change from USS New Mexico in that respect. Like, USS New Mexico, you could actually, like, kind of dodge shells a little bit with this. It, no. Nope, not going to dodge it. I mean, you, you're pressing the A key for a really long time to get it to do anything. Or the A and D keys, I guess. You do have two of those. Two directions in which you can turn the rudder. Um, the surface detectability range is pretty bad at 16 kilometers. Remember, the range is only 17 kilometers, so uh, not super great. The air detectability range is 9 kilometers. So not super great here. So this is a bad, I mean bad stock grind ship it is crazy it's one of the only ships in the line that has a really bad stop grind so i guess we'll go over some of the specs from the top configuration so it would have 59,300 hit points which is still kind of low for a tier 7 battleship but not super bad uh in top configuration and in top configuration not much changes with the guns the range does increase to 18 kilometers but not not much changes 
The secondary armament changes a little bit in that there's two less 51 caliber guns and two more... Uh, looks like two more 25 caliber guns, some more AA defense there, and there is way more AA defense on the uh, second hull of the ship. You actually get 40 millimeter bofers now, you uh, or both Mark One and Mark Twos. You get both the dual turrets or the dual guns and the quadruple gun uh, turrets of the bofers, and then there's always those 127 millimeter guns. But the number of Orlikin guns does change from 38 uh, to 37, and that's just because you're making more room for those better and more effective Bofors cannons. Maneuverability increases to 21 knots with a 14.2 second uh, rudder shift time, and the concealment does not change. So, I mean, yeah, concealment's not great. You're not going to sneak up on anything in this ship, but it is a battleship. You're really not going to be sneaking up on anything regardless. But it does eliminate the, um, or actually for me, the option of taking concealment expert because there's really no point in it. Unless you're trying to get it for higher tier ships, there's really no point in taking concealment expert because it's like polishing a turd. So this is probably the only time I'm going to disagree with the World of Warships Wikipedia page. And this is because I think it's an older version of the Colorado that they're talking about because there was a point in the Colorado's lifetime in World of Warships where it was garbage. And then they buffed it a little bit and it was actually a decent ship. And then they nerfed it again. And now it's kind of garbage again. So on the World of Warships Wikipedia page, it says that she's a close-in brawler and that she has a large immune zone and her guns are fairly accurate. However, this is not true. Her guns are horribly inaccurate. At least in my experience. So I guess if you have an experience of Colorados that can hit targets out to 18 kilometers and smash them to bits on regular occasions, I would like to know. Because I can't seem to hit targets at 8 kilometers with this ship. It is terrible. So I have not fully upgraded the ship yet, but it is you have to get in close with this ship. And that's what it says in the World of Warships wiki, is that you have to get in close with the ship. And this is when that 49,000 hit point HP pool does not come in handy. You need to upgrade that. I, I regret not upgrading that first, and uh, I have yet to upgrade that on my ship, and I regret that because I ran out of credits to upgrade it, and... Yeah, that's not good. So I would recommend uh, first researching the propulsion systems because the propulsion on the ship is terrible. It has an 18-knot top speed, which makes it basically look like a moving island. Like, seriously, the islands in this game seem to move faster than the Colorado. Their tectonic activity makes them move faster than this ship. It is crazily slow. So research that first. And then now you're going to have to research the Colorado Hull B because you need the more hit points. And I tell you, getting absolutely deleted by a Georgia, even though you have a lot of armor because you just don't have the hit points to deal with the shells, is not fun. So I would recommend having that extra um, 8,000 hit points because that really does make a difference. And then you can research the gunfire control systems upgrade because... I mean, it'll increase the range of the ship, but you don't really need it because you can't hit anything at that range anyways. So it's more just for that, like, I guess, opening salvo on an enemy cruiser that may or may not get you some good hits. Mostly just gets me over penetrations and ricochets on a cruiser for whatever reason. But, you know, sometimes it does get you a decent salvo. So I guess pros and cons of this ship, first of all, the pros is uh, she has the all-or-nothing armor scheme, which tends to make you very resistant to anything that's tiers below you. But um, it doesn't matter for any for a Georgia or a Musashi because it can punch straight through the bows and pretty much straight through your belt armor. The AA guns on the ship are fairly powerful, especially in the modernized hull. Um, the turning circle radius is not that bad. Uh, the uh, artillery plotting room can increase the range to be on par with Japanese and German uh, counterparts. You can actually equip the fighter seaplane, and that is going to replace your spotting plane, and that can increase your 
a defense. However, I do recommend keeping the spotting plane. And that's not just to increase the range of your ship. It's easy to catch Atlantas uh, on the other side of islands. Because remember, these uh, armor-piercing shells have high arcs. So that spotting plane can enable you to see over the islands and target them better. And that's coming into use. And also the spotting plane acts as like a pseudo-hydroacoustic search spotting torpedoes for you. And that is very helpful in a Colorado, which has an 18-second rudder shift time. <laughs> abysmal. Very abysmal. Um, and the repair party is slightly buffed on this ship. It uh, repairs 0.65% of maximum hit points per second compared to 0.5 per second on other ships. And this is just compensating for that lower hit point pool. Although they might have taken that away, I'm not sure, because the last time it checked was a little while ago. Um, so the cons of the ship, obvious, very low maneuverability. I mean, it takes away your ability to dodge torpedoes quickly, because if you're going full rudder one way, and then there's torpedoes come, that pop up on the other side, it's going to take you a good 18 seconds to get over to the other side, and even just start turning. So that can be a little difficult. The number of guns on the ship, you might not think it makes that much of a difference, especially if you um, are used to playing uh, the ships like the New Mexico, which have 12 guns, and you've been used to 12 guns for a while now. Uh, it makes a huge difference, because every ship before this, you think of the Wyoming, you think of the New York, you think of the Arizona, you think of the New Mexico, they all have a decent amount of guns. This ship does not. It has eight of them, and that really impacts it because, let's say, four of them missed. There goes 50% of your firepower. Gone. And it means that you have less than ability to wipe cruisers' butts off the map. Uh, so that can be a little bit uh, frustrating at times. Uh, her close quarters defense is terrible. Those secondary armaments are not going to do anything. And this makes it more like a Nagato, but it doesn't even, like remotely compared to a Gneisenau. Gneisenau will just slap this thing in terms of secondary uh, gun firepower. And there's a lot of 25mm plating on this ship, and it makes it uh, vulnerable to HE spam and overmatched by anything larger than a 15-inch gun. And this is the same problem that the USS New Orleans actually has. It can be overmatched by 15-inch or 15.1-inch guns or larger, I think is what it is. And that's uh, basically every battleship that you'll ever face, with the exception of a Shorenhorst. And I'm trying to think... Oh, and a King George V won't overmatch this ship, but it's high explosive that does like 14k damage salvos. Yeah, that pretty much overcompensates for that. Okay, so now on to the optimal configuration, and we're going to start with the upgrades. And slot 1... The most common pick for every battleship, and no exception for the Colorado, is the main armaments modification 1. And that's what I have on my ship, because I don't generally go for anti-aircraft builds on this ship, because, or on any ship, because it's kind of useless because of the uh, carrier rework. And the auxiliary armaments modification 1, which will buff your AA guns, is commonly used for uh, captains who do want the AA build. And I'm not going to discriminate against that. If you want to shoot down a few more planes before they attack you, that's that's perfectly fine. I have nothing wrong with that. Um, I just think that the main armaments modification 1 is more useful. And slot 2 is the typical damage control systems modification 1. And that's going to reduce your chance of fires and flood because the... Colorado is a big target for both torpedoes and HE spam, so you do want to reduce that chance of having fire. Um, slot 3, uh, that's a bit of a toss-up between everything. You could have AA guns modification 1, just boost the AA envelope. Secondary modification 1 is just going to boost the range and accuracy of your secondaries, and um, that can fend you off, or fend off uh, any destroyers or anything that come in range, and I guess you could do that if you just want that kind of last-ditch sort of thing. If, uh, I don't know, um, a Japanese destroyer is coming in close just to try and get some easy damage on a basically stationary Colorado because uh, the difference between stationary and full speed is not that much in this ship. Um, yeah, I could see that. Just kind of discouragement for them. The artillery plotting room modification 1 is going to uh, increase the range to give the secondaries a slight boost in range and accuracy. Um, I mean, that could be a good choice, but it is a weaker choice than other ones. That's what I have, because I just like to get that initial salvo off on other ships, and it still does boost the secondaries' uh, range and accuracy. 
I just like that little bit of extra range on my main gun so I can hit things a little bit further out there, even though maybe I'm not doing the most damage to them. It allows me to get more damage in earlier in the match when ships are at longer ranges. And I do like doing that. And then we get to slot 4, which is a bit of a toss-up, and I do have a solid recommendation for this. So, the recommended thing to do, and what most people tell you is, oh, get steering gears modification 1, because your uh, rudder shift times are really bad, and you'll want to uh, decrease that. And you could, you could just get steering gears modification 1. Uh, but this ship is a big target for fire and things like that. So you're going to want to get damage control systems modification 2, in my opinion, to reduce the amount of uh, time on the fire. So this is going to reduce the amount of time it takes to put out the fire and I believe floods as well. And this conserves hit points. And my recommendation is to get damage control systems modification 2 when you get the ship off the tech tree. So you upgrade from USS New Mexico and then you go to uh, the USS Colorado and you're just about to take it up, but I would recommend slapping that damage control systems modification 2 on there to reduce the amount of damage you're going to take from fires and floods and uh, save damage control parties for you. And you're also going to conserve hit points because there's only 49,000 of them. But when you upgrade to the second hull, I would recommend switching that upgrade to steering gears modification 1 just to get that rudder shift time down, because as a fully upgraded Colorado, you do have a higher chance of getting into higher tier matches. So that is not fun if you have a rudder shift time of 18 or 14 seconds, and you're trying to dodge torpedoes from Japanese destroyers. Really not fun, so I recommend getting a steering gears modification one there. And because uh, you have more hit points, you don't necessarily need to have the damage control systems modification too. And now we move on to recommended commander skills. And there is not very many commander skills that are like particularly suited for this ship. It's just a pretty typical battleship. There's, I mean, it is like the average battleship. There's, I guess, nothing really to say about more about the ship. There's only a few that are really recommended, or at least for me. So the first one is always going to be recommended. They put it on every single ship I have, and that's priority target. And the priority target is the indicator which tells you how many ships are aiming at you. It is essential for situational awareness and uh, to conduct some risky maneuvers. So uh, the next one in Tier 2, Expert Marksman, and that's going to increase the... Uh, turning rate of your guns and that's especially useful on a battleship which has a low turning rate on the guns you could put adrenaline rush on uh, because the ship does take a lot of damage from high explosive uh, shells so that would be useful and that's going to increase the uh, or decrease the reload time rather of your guns as you lose hit points um, in tier 3 recommended one is uh, basics of survivability because remember this is a big target it's a typical battleship uh, it's going to reduce the amount of time to repair, uh, extinguish fire, and recover from flooding. Uh, that's useful. Although, you could also use Survivability Expert, which is going to add 350 ship HP for each ship tier. Um, kind of useful. I, I like it on my captains, but it's maybe not the most useful thing. If you're going for uh, uh, an AA build, you're definitely going to want to put... Uh, basic firing training. That's also going to reduce the amount of time it takes to reload your guns, which is always useful. Concealment expert, ah, uh, for the first time, it's not a really recommended skill on this ship just because the concealment's so bad to begin with, you can't really get it down any further. And just because it's like a typical battleship, it doesn't really uh, need concealment and it's not going to sneak up on anything, so really not uh, recommended there. The fire prevention is... Uh, pretty essential, I would say, and that's going to reduce your risk of fire, and it's also going to reduce the maximum number of fires on your ship from four to three. Now, personally, I've never had four fires set on me, and I mean, that's probably pretty rare, but I've never had to deal with that because I've never been in that bad of a position. But, I mean, for some of you who like to kind of uh, play your ships a little bit more riskfully, I guess, uh, that might be very useful. Uh, manual fire control for secondary armament? Yeah, not really. No, I really wouldn't take that because it's not going to be super useful. At the point in which something's engaging your secondary batteries, it's, um, it, it'll be the only thing that should be within that range, so you're not going to need uh, manual fire selection. Uh, you could also go for advanced firing training. 
uh, and that's going to increase your AA and uh, range of all s- your secondary battery guns, which is, eh, it's okay. I mean, you could really buff the secondary battery guns, but the bad thing is it's not a German battleship. It doesn't have that many secondaries. They're not going to do that much damage. They don't have that high of a rate of fire, so it's really not going to be useful for that much. So, I mean, if you really stick everything into buffing the secondaries, yeah. I mean, you probably could get the range on to... 7-ish kilometers, maybe 6.5 or so. Uh, really not super useful. Uh, signal flags, uh, also pretty typical. Full AA build, you're going to want to run November Echo Set 7, and that's going to buff the damage output from your anti-aircraft guns. Although we do recommend really running that uh, Indie Yankee, which is going to reduce the duration of fire. Um, and then Juliet Yankee Bisso 2, and that's going to reduce the duration of the floods. That's also useful. Standard for all battleships, I would say, run India Delta. That's going to increase the amount of HP recovered when a repair party is used. Very, very useful. Um, then November Fox Trial is going to reduce the reload time on all your consumables. Uh, that's pretty useful. Not particularly on the Colorado. I mean, reducing the reload time on your heal is useful sometimes, but I guess not as critical in a Rus- as it is in a Russian battleship with its damage control party that is already got a really low reload time. So if you reduce that even more, it, it does um, really help out. And so if you have a maybe a cruiser with more consumables or a Russian battleship, I would save November Frogstrat for that because it's not super essential on this ship. Uh, Juliet Charlie, you could use that to eliminate the risk of your magazine detonation. I generally run that only if I'm running India X-Ray or Victor Lima, and that is those two flags increase the chance of your magazine detonating, so that's why you run Juliet Charlie to counter that, to make sure your magazine still won't detonate, because otherwise it becomes too large of a chance of your magazine detonating, and that's dangerous. So, uh, wrapping that up, so how are we going to play this ship, right? How are we going to play it? Well, I mean, there's a few different ways you could play it. You could play it the way that World of Warships Wiki wants you to play it and just get in close and brawl. However, especially if you don't have that um, hull modification, the hull B, that's really not going to work well, and it'll get you some damage points for sure and a few kills, but uh, it's not good in the long run because you won't survive that long. This is not a German battleship. This is not a Gneisenau. Although Gneisenau's are famous for suicide runs anyways. But this is not a German battleship. It doesn't have that turtleback armor. You will still get citadeled at close range. So I do not recommend that form of attack. However, what I do recommend is playing this similarly to a Russian battleship. And you're thinking, Jaden, what? You want us to play our American ships full of freedom and everything as we would a Soviet ship? That represents communism. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, this ship, while it doesn't have that ice-breaking bow that's famous of the Soviet battleships and really tough on the battleships, it does play like that because it doesn't have accurate guns out probably anything more than 14 kilometers or less, sometimes even less than 10 kilometers. It's still not accurate. But once you get into that, like, 12 to 8 or so, right around where Russian battleships are... Man, these things will rip ships to shreds. Uh, especially if you get a good hit on target. Like, cruisers just melt under your guns. So, you should play it like a Russian battleship. That is how I found most successful in playing different strategies on this ship. Because it doesn't work in a central position, as all American battleships really don't. I mean... You have to maintain sort of a central position, but it's not good to go in between caps or to B or anything like that, or straight up the middle. It's not a good idea because you're just going to get torpedoed or focused instantly because you're a dangerous ship with your 16-inch guns and armor. Uh, it, it doesn't work super well on the flanks either because its long-range accuracy is terrible and its speed is terrible, so if you win the flank, you're never going to see another ship for the rest of the battle. But... It does work on the mid-flanks. So what I mean by that is, like, not all the way on the flanks, but not in the center. So if you work just outside of Capture Point Alpha or Charlie or where they would be if you're in a um, not in a domination battle, you will find the most success there because you're in a somewhat central position. You're not super far out in the flanks, but yet you're not in the center going, getting focused by the whole team. You're simply sort of bow in, sort of angled to most of the ships that are shooting at you, and you can get your guns to bear and start 
shooting at them. And that way, if you win the flank, you can cross over through all the caps and maintain that central position, shoot at all ships, and eliminate them. If you start losing the flank, you could turn around and kite. And speaking of kiting, this ship's uh, rear armor is not that great, so you're really going to have to make sure that you're angling and not just going straight backwards, because if you go straight backwards, anything larger than... 15-inch guns just going to punch straight through the stern and citadel you. It is not fun. So what you want to do is keep angled. And you will show a little bit of broadside, and it feels like uncomfortable, but that's what you have to do. That's the highest chance of getting ricochets and non-penetrations because your armor is doing what it's supposed to. So you really want to make sure that you're not giving them that long target. I know you want to make the target profile as small as possible, but if they do land those shots, they will citadel you they will and same with bow wind it's not going to work to go bow in with anything other than the king george v firing armor piercing for whatever reason or possibly uh any like a new mexico or something like if you're down tiered and you're fighting new york's and new mexico's absolutely bow in and tank them because they will not be able to damage you and especially at close range, this thing shines against anything that's lower tier. However, at higher tiers, it's going to have to keep its distance a little more. But it cannot just sit at the back of the map, spamming armor piercing from ranges in excess of uh, 20 kilometers with your spider plane up and expect to hit anything and do any damage. It doesn't work. I've tried it. So what's the gist of the ship's play in World of Warships? Well... I would say you want to stick close to the flank caps. Do not go to the center. So mid-flank, if, if when the flank, then you turn towards the opposite cap. So if you're at A, go to C. If you're at C, go to A. And through the caps or so. Or maybe just a little bit north or south of them. So just a little bit outside. Do not go all the way out in the flanks. Do not go up the middle. And do not sit at the back of the map and spam armor piercing. Yeah, it's not going to work. You will not. You either will get instantly killed, or you're just not going to do any damage. And that's really not cool, because then you end up being the last ship left alive, which you might think is cool, but this ship does not do super well fighting on its own against a lot of enemy ships, namely destroyers. Which brings me to my second point in the gist, besides just positioning. If you see destroyers, shoot at them. Or run away. I mean, I guess there's no running away from the story here, but just don't engage destroyers if you know they're there. And if you must engage them, make sure you try to take them out quickly because this thing does not do well against destroyers. Against cruisers, it is amazing. However, I've noticed against British light cruisers, this will actually overpenetrate at anything less than around 8 kilometers. It will guaranteed pretty much overpenetrate, even at longer ranges. So especially at shorter ranges, you might be better firing high explosive depending on if they're angled or not. If they're slightly angled, fire the armor piercing because that means they're making their armor thicker and, uh, or based on trigonometry, they're making their armor thicker and that means there's less of a chance of overpenetration. But make sure you aim really low on those ships if you come in contact with light cruisers. Aim really low or you're just going to get overbent. And research hull B as quickly as possible. The stock grind on the ship is pretty bad. I mean, it's not as bad as some of those Japanese ships, but it's pretty bad. So you're going to want to make sure that you do your level best to get out of hull A as quickly as possible. And I think if you follow those things, you will have much success on Colorado. As once you like, once it clicks with you, she's a very fun ship to play. Even though on on paper she doesn't look super great, but when you really learn how to play her and play her to her strengths, she will wreck house. She will take out any cruisers who dare come at her, and then she will give battleships one heck of a fight. And that just about wraps it up for the episode on USS Colorado, but stick around. We got another podcast that you might want to check out. And that is the podcast, The Fire-Breathing Kittens. So are you itching for a good story, laughter among friends, or maybe a mystery? The Fire-Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears. You can listen to these adventures in any order. It does not matter. Join in on a real-play D&D quest as they solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. 
the Fire Breathing Kittens podcast. Everything you need, including fantasy, action, mystery, and friendship. A very interesting podcast indeed. If you have any interest at all in Dungeons and Dragons, and even maybe you aren't, this is a good way to get into that game. And my goodness, do they do a good job on their production. And this is a three-hour-long podcast. You can listen to it while you're working out, studying for a test, or just going to commute, or maybe you're going up north for the weekend, or something like that. This is an excellent podcast to listen to, highly recommended by its listeners. This podcast is available at its website, which is easily reached by Googling fire-breathing kittens, or at any podcast platform that you use, particularly the one that you're listening to Rank Amateur on as well. But after you check out the fire-breathing kittens podcast, don't forget to email me with any questions or suggestions for the next episode of Rank Amateur. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review and check out my merch store, which is in the description of this episode. If you click details or more details here or just look at the description on your podcasting platform. And I thank you for listening to this episode of Ranked Amateur. I will not be making an episode next week. And this is just because of the Thanksgiving holiday. And until next time, captains. (laughs) 